I would encourage you, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn with me to the ninth chapter of the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah as we continue our series tonight, Shadows of Christ in the Old Testament. I was reminded this morning by one of our men that uh, this is a Christmas passage, and so it is. It does speak of the birth of our Lord. Surely Isaiah 9 is one of the most significant passages in the Bible. I'm about to read verses 1 through 7, and Isaiah here is writing in the context of deep darkness. The northern kingdom of Israel had been overthrown by the mighty power of Assyria, and it seems as though the northern kingdom is about... to disappear from the face of the earth. Deep darkness has indeed covered the face of the land. And it is into this context of darkness and despair that Isaiah writes these words, speaking to the people of a coming day when light will shine into the darkness, when hope is going to banish despair. Indeed, when God himself will step into his world and declare himself to be this God of light and of mercy and of grace. So let us attend to the reading of God's word, Isaiah chapter 9 in the first seven verses. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of of Naphtali, that's the northern area of Israel. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light had on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our Lord 
shall stand forever. Would you bow with me in prayer and ask God's blessing upon the ministry of his word, and I would be grateful for your prayers to that end. Let us pray. <clears throat> oh, Holy Father, once again we bow before you to confess that our minds are natively dark and restless and unable to concentrate as we ought to perceive your truth. And therefore we plead with you this evening that you would be pleased to send your spirit that under his present and powerful influence we may come both to understand and to receive in faith and obedience these words of your prophet and that we might find comfort in the light of him of whom he prophesies. We know, Father, that with you is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. And we would ask that you would send forth your spirit to that end. Hear our cry as together we present this petition before you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. To be sure, the Bible has a plot line. Now, it has a number of plot lines, to be sure, but there is one dominant plot line that runs from the book of Genesis all the way through the Bible to the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And through the course of that plot line, God is increasingly unfolding all along his eternal plan and purpose to bring life and light and hope and help into the darkness of this fallen sinful world. And perhaps nowhere in the Old Testament scriptures than we find in the prophecy of Isaiah. And as we were reminded this morning, probably the most evangelical of all the Old Testament prophets, we see that this plot line is increasingly unpacked for us. And we discover in the prophecy of Isaiah a truth which has been underscored earlier in the book of Genesis that had not really been clarified in any significant way before now. That being the truth of God's answer to the fallenness, the darkness, the brokenness, and the lostness of his creation. His answer to all of that is that of a child. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And I would think surprisingly, remarkably, as God's people hear this, indeed staggeringly, God's answer to his fallen creation is this of a child. Now the promise of a deliverer was given, as you may well remember, back in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. In the wake, in the aftermath of the wreckage and ruin of Adam's cosmic rebellion against God and his plunge into sin, God promised that one would come forth from the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. That God would raise up someone from the seed of the woman to triumph, to be victorious over Satan and all of his deceptions. Now that promise comes to something 
of a climax in the prophecy of Isaiah. Not in these verses, mind you, but further on in chapter 53, of which we'll hear in a few weeks, where we discover that this child who is born, this son who is given, given from the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent, would do this as a suffering servant. He would accomplish rescue by himself, bearing the sin and the judgment and the curse and the condemnation and the fallenness of this broken world. God would provide in a suffering servant a way back to himself for humanity. But here in these verses, Isaiah explains to these people to whom he's writing, whose lives have been blighted by the darkness of their day. He tells them that God, that their God has provided them an answer to their darkness and to their distress. Please notice what we read in verse 2. Though God had brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. No one thought that anything good could arise out of Galilee. Galilee was in the north. It had been overrun time and time again by various invaders. It was regarded as something of a mixture, a, a mongrel part of the Israelite people. And it was surely the last place from which the people of Israel would expect help to come. And yet God pledges to make glorious Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And when the Lord Jesus Christ, you may recall, began his public ministry in Galilee, Matthew cites these very words in Matthew chapter 4, chapter 13 through, or chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. Because he sees in the life and ministry and in the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Galilean. He sees the fulfillment of God's promise to cast great light into the darkness and the despair of his people. Now Isaiah is writing here somewhere, I suppose, between the years 430 or, or 730 and 720 B.C. And he's looking forward to what God is most certainly going to do in order to bring hope and help to his beleaguered, to his troubled people. And if you listen carefully, you will have noticed that here in verses 1 through 7, all the verbs are set before us in past tense, as if everything had already transpired. Yes, Isaiah is looking prophetically to the future. But the future in the mind of Isaiah is so certain, so sure, that he writes as though it were already a past reality and accomplished. God will certainly do it, he's saying. Be encouraged. He is saying to them, don't lose heart. Don't give up hope. 
God has promised to bring great light into your darkness. Now what is surely remarkable is that that great light which will shine and bring deliverance is identified with a child who is a son. For to us a child is born. And the Hebrew syntax of this verse is such that the emphasis is not on the to us, but rather on a child. The emphasis falls on the child. A child is born to us. The priority of this surprising answer from God to the darkness and despair is given stress, you'll notice, is given prominence in that his promise is bound up with a child who is a son. And even more remarkable, this child's son is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the Hebrew, he is called literally Wonder of a Counselor. And I think the idea being conveyed here is an emphasis upon the supernatural. That is, he's not simply a counselor who gives good human counsel and advice, but a wonder of a counselor, one who will guide and lead us supernaturally, who will bring us wisdom from above. He's a wonder of a counselor. Moreover, he is called mighty God, El Gabor in the Hebrew. This helpless child, so it would seem, is none other than mighty God. Now, we will require of us the entirety of the biblical revelation to help us to begin to understand how this could possibly be. How can a child be mighty God? Because as we discover in the birth narratives of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels, God gloriously, if unfathomably and ineffably comes into the womb of a virgin and unites the substance of our humanity to the glory of his infinite deity. He is mighty God. He is everlasting Father. He is Prince of Peace. However, the question that is often raised in the face of a passage like this, when they reflect upon the different titles, if they are indeed titles given to this child, is this. I can understand, I think, to some extent, the wonder of a counselor. Likewise, mighty God. Likewise, the Prince of Peace. I can, I can understand that because in the incarnation, he joins my frail flesh to his glorious deity. That's what he does in the incarnation. But that being said, what does it mean for Messiah, who is Jesus the Messiah? What does it mean for him, the Son of God, to be called Everlasting Father? Isn't Jesus the everlasting son? Why is he called here in this passage the everlasting father? Is God simply existing in different modes? In one mode he's the father, in another mode he's the son, and in another mode he's the spirit? Are we modalist as one of the early 
heresies in the history of the church taught? No, never. God is the Father, He is the Son, He is the Holy Spirit. Our Lord Jesus is the everlasting Son. But in relation to His church, hear me out please, He is everlasting Father. Think of the 103rd Psalm and the 13th verse there. As a father shows compassion, as a father shows pity to his children, shows the Lord, so the Lord shows compassion, shows pity to those who fear him. That's not speaking there about the father. That's speaking about Yahweh, the covenant Lord. And together in their triunity, they act and behave together like a father to their children. You have the same thing in the 68th Psalm. Just to mention a few of the Psalms in the passing. The 68th Psalm in verse 5. God is father of the fatherless and the protector or defender of widows in his holy habitation. In relation to his people, Jesus is everlasting father. And as that phrase communicates to us, I want to suggest at least some three significant things about Jesus' relationship to his people, to his believing blood-bought people. There are three things we can say in commenting upon everlasting Father. And he is that because, first of all, he has been sent from the Father to father a new humanity. Growing up in the United States, I, we, were taught that George Washington is the father of our country. He was the father under whom a new nation came into existence. And in that sense, Washington gave birth to or fathered our nation. Now in the Bible, we discover that Adam was indeed our original father. From one man, we're told, Acts 17, verse 26, and many other places, from one man, God made every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. From one man, the stream of humanity came forth. But Adam failed, and he fell. And he rebelled against God and he dragged humanity down with him. Indeed, he dragged all of us down with him in his fall. And so by nature, we are born, you and I, into the world bearing the wrecked, marred image of God in fallen Adam who is the head of humanity. But in Jesus Christ... God has come, wonder of wonders, to begin again. He's the everlasting Father. He's designated from eternity to father a new humanity. Indeed, he was born to, a, he was born to, a, to father this humanity according to Scripture. And that is why the virgin birth for us is so vitally significant. It is a dramatic sign that God has come in an altogether new way to begin a new race from the second man.
from heaven. 1 Corinthians 15, 47. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And the mark of this new humanity is the second birth, the birth from above. The inward renewing of the Holy Spirit, which grants repentance from sin, faith and trust alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam, our first father, fell. And Jesus Christ, our new father, has reversed the curse of our first father's failure and is restoring in us the image of God that was defaced in Adam. And that is why the Apostle Paul speaks of Christ as the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45. And as the second man, he is the head of a new humanity. And that's what the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ is all about. It's not simply about saving one here and saving one there. It's about God and his son recreating for himself a new humanity, a new creation. Salvation brings you into a new family. It brings you into a new race, so to speak. A new race where every member of that race is marked by a second birth, the birth from above. So he is everlasting father because he's come to father a new humanity. But he is in the second place, everlasting father. Why? Because he promised in his word never to leave us as orphans. When Jesus, you'll recall, meets with his disciples in the upper room in those chapters of John, chapters 13 through 17, our Lord, in a very intimate way, begins to disclose to them who he is and his relationship to the Father and the Holy Spirit. And you can imagine how the disciples on that occasion became deeply distressed with the prospect of the Lord Jesus departing and leaving them alone. But sensing their sorrow and sadness, he declares to them in no uncertain terms, John 14 and verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And in the context there, he meant that I will come to you by my spirit, the spirit of adoption. My presence will be with you and in you by my spirit. If anyone loves me, Jesus said, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come and make our home with him, I will not leave you as orphans. So Jesus Christ is our everlasting father because he behaves towards us as a father, shepherding us, guarding us, keeping us. Think of the parable of the prodigal son, as it's often called, though not overly accurately. The parable of the younger son, you'll recall, leaves the family's home and he squanders his inheritance upon riotous living. 
and the older brother who is just as lost as the younger brother and perhaps even more lost than the younger brother. He's lost in the father's house. And the heart of the parable in Luke chapter 15 is not to focus on the younger son who squanders his living and then returns home. And it's not actually to focus on the older brother, though in the father's house is just as lost as the younger brother. Because he doesn't see his father as a father. And he complains, you'll recall, saying, Lo, these many years I served you, father. I slaved for you. Never disobeyed the single command you ever gave me. But you see, the heart of the parable is to underscore, indeed to emphasize, to exalt the welcoming, restoring love of the father in the story. As he welcomes the younger son and as he reaches out to the older son. And in the parable, it is Jesus who is the father figure there. Jesus is speaking of himself as the father in this parable. He is the father who runs to embrace his penitent returning son. I will not leave. I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you, says the Lord Jesus. But then in the third place, he is everlasting father because he is the one, dear people, who brings us into the family of God. One of the pivotal texts in the Bible, and I have in mind here, is found in the second chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. Where in verse 13, the writer, drawing upon the language of Isaiah 8 and verse 18, interprets the prophet's words as none other than the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Here am I and the children you have given me. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not usurping here the eternity of God's fatherhood. Rather, he is saying, Father, they are yours. You have given them to me, entrusted them to me. They are my children. Therefore, Father, receive them with me because they're inseparably united to me by faith. The Lord Jesus Christ brings us into the family of God because he is the one member of the family of God who is truly virtuously righteous and acceptable to God. He is our elder brother, for he is not ashamed, Hebrews 2 verse 11, to call us his brethren. But in terms of redemption, in terms of his ministry to us as redeemer and savior, he acts as a father. When Isaiah speaks of Messiah as the everlasting father, he is in no way confusing or confounding the distinct and personal identities of the Godhead. Jesus is not the father, he is the son, but he acts like a father in his saving work. 
We might even express it this way, that he speaks and represents in himself the Father's care for all of his children. Now, I suppose perhaps that for some of you here this evening, the mere mention of the word father may conjure up for you the negative memory of a bad experience. Thus, I do think that we ought to exercise extreme caution with respect to the climate and the culture of this present age. When we speak of God as Father, because for many people the term Father is associated with tragedy and fear and hurt and shame, and I'm quite conscious of that reality, it's very possible that some of you here this evening harbor and bear painful memories of an abusive father. But here is a father in Scripture who is merciful beyond measure. Here is a father who is tender and kind and patient and long-suffering with his children, full of love, who laid down his life for his children. Here is a father to whom you can run with all of your burdens and distress. Here is a father to whom you can cling, knowing that he will never fail you in his loving embrace to give comfort and help with a sympathetic heart. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not abandon you. And that's what the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ teaches us, does it not? Here's a Savior who promises never to abandon his own, even though it cost him everything. And make no mistake, it did. So then this child to be born, this son to be given, was Isaiah's vision of hope to a people who walked in darkness. And that darkness was real. It wasn't fake or fabricated. The land was indeed immersed in deep darkness. Think of the aftermath of the destruction of the Assyrian invaders and the gloom and the darkness they felt. And dear people, may I say that we today live in a similar time, do we not, in state of affairs. To be sure, we're not living, you and I, in the aftermath of the devastation and destruction on the scale of that inflicted upon northern Israel by the Assyrian invaders. But we're nonetheless living in a day when we find ourselves virtually overwhelmed by a moral and a spiritual darkness the likes of which none of us has ever experienced. All you have to do is turn on the TV and listen to the evening news, and it all comes home in a very real way. The darkness today in the United States is palpable. It is conspicuous. It is discernible in virtually every area of life to which we look. As Isaiah expressed it in chapter 5 of his prophecy in verse 20, evil is called good. 
and good is called evil. Darkness covers the face of our land as in many lands across our world today. And you and I have something of a decision to make. Whether we're going to be mesmerized or paralyzed by the darkness and permit that to bring nothing but gloom and doom and despair and the sense of defeat in our Christian witness and living and praying. But we must decide, you and I, whether we're going to succumb to the darkness or whether we're going to fix our eyes by faith on this child who was born and this son who is given. Because, you see, at the end of the day, the government still rests upon his shoulder and no other. He is in charge of his peace. There's going to be no end. Ultimately, and ultimate and final authority rests with Christ and with him alone. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, Isaiah says, he will know no end to these. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. And then Isaiah adds these, adds these words, the zeal of the Lord shall do it, will do it. You look around us today and you see the spiral of despair and darkness. Social cohesion, social structures are disintegrating at the edges. And they're ever moving toward the center as well. Family life is increasingly marked by dysfunction and deterioration. Dear people, this isn't just pessimism on my part. It is realism. When you look at the world today. But the danger for us as God's people is that we can allow the darkness to bewitch us and to forget that God has already cast, has already shown his light into the darkness as we were vividly reminded this morning. And we can forget that we have been blessed, you and I, by God's grace to have seen this great light. Jesus did declare... I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have, he says, the light of life. Christian believers can walk through the darkness of this world knowing that a light has shone. And that light has shone in our own darkened hearts and brought us to a place of hope and trust alone. In the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, given to us through the love of our Heavenly Father. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom with justice and with righteousness, he will rule the nations. You read that in Isaiah's prophecy and you think to yourself, well, David... When is that going to happen? How is it going to happen? Isaiah's response is, 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. Bethlehem was indeed a seismic moment in cosmic history. God himself broke into the brokenness of this fallen world in person. That event was a seismic moment, but it wasn't the Mount Everest moment, was it? Because that moment came when the child who is a son hung bleeding and dying upon Calvary's tree, giving his life for the sin of the world, bearing and suffering the judgment of human sin, and indeed engulfed in the very darkness of human sin itself. He took what was ours in order to give us what is his. And that is the gospel. That is the good news of Holy Scripture. It is cosmic because that is the ultimate goal. The ultimate purpose is a new heavens and a new earth. The home of righteousness where the child who is a son will reign as king forever and ever. And be sure of this. This is one thing that Isaiah emphasizes here. Be sure of this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. When, when we read this, it says, His name shall be called Wonder of a Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Such is our Savior, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus declared, as we heard so vividly again this morning, in John chapter 8 and verse 12, I am the light of the world. He wasn't chanting some little ditty akin to fairy tale genre. Rather, the Lord Jesus was putting the world on notice that he, as the light of the world, would have the last word on the darkness thereof. May God grant that we who by grace have been brought to Christ, that we will fix our eyes, our gaze, our faith, our hope upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Let's pray.